Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Misty Dillon, and he'll be answering your questions on the Golden Mystery. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Misty a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form on the right-hand column of our web pages. Just fill in your name and your email address, and then we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 40 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to the website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Misty Dillon about the Golden Monsieur. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. Before we introduce Misty, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Misty's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that uh, link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. And thanks to Stackpole Books, we'll also be giving away a book which we'll, uh, you'll be able to pick from a list of uh, titles that we have available. And here's how you can win one of those books. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions, I sometimes ask too, um, that we ask at the end of the show. And the question's going to be about something that we talk about during the show. And you just submit your answer along with your name and your location in the text box on our home page. This is the same place that you can ask questions during the show. So do that. Take uh, good notes. Um, type fast, and maybe you'll win a book tonight. Our guest tonight is Misty Dillon, a passionate angler at heart. Misty started obsessing over fly fishing for the Golden Monsieur in 1994. The Golden Monsieur are a highly evolved bioindicator fish species that swim in rivers across the rugged Himalayan foothills of Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, and Myanmar. As a guide and Himalayan tour operator for 15 years, Misty fulfilled his travelers' needs for safety, certainty, and consistency while manifesting their contradictory call 
of stepping into the unknown. Misty's passion led him to organize pioneering fly fishing expedition travel, often involving complicated logistics, special permits, and much of the stepping into the unknown as one can imagine in the remote sub-Himalaya. Working with some of the region's best operators has equipped Misty with the knowledge and international connection to know how to run a fine attention to detail adventure journeys. In addition, Misty is also a certified casting instructor from the International Fly Fishers Organization. Over the past two years, Misty has also been involved in efforts of community conservation to protect watersheds and Golden Monsieur habitat, a journey that brought Misty a much deeper connection to the communities that surround the Golden Monsieur habitat. Misty brings his expertise of adventure and travel and the vision of a Maryland-based transformative travel, a travel company he and his wife co-founded early in 2019. Well, Misty, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Roger, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm really delighted to be on your podcast. Well, good, good, good. Good to have you and uh, learn about a fish I don't think we have in North America, but you can correct me if I'm wrong there. <laughs> I don't think we have it here, do we? It is an indigenous fish just to, uh, to, the, to the Himalayan foothills, mostly, the Golden Mask. Right. Okay. And um, uh, the, can you just uh, describe the fish to us, um, what it looks like, you know, sizes, that kind of thing, so we can get to know it a, a bit? Is it, is it, and is it like any, any other fish that we might have uh, fished for? Absolutely. I like to describe it as a fish of a thousand and one casts. It's a, the iridescent golden mahasir. It's one of the most striking fish you'll see, especially when you hold it up in the sunlight. Um, and it's a fish which has really evolved over thousands of years in the Himalayan foothills. You know, worked my way eastward right up from Pakistan all across India. India is a large part of that. You know, and then of course Nepal, um, Bhutan, and then all the way into Myanmar. Um, they're from the Barbel family, you'll, you know, most people who, you know, look at the Mahas here say, you know, looks like a bit of a tarpon, like a carp mixed between a tarpon. And, you know, it's genetically evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, probably with the larger scales that seem like a larger scale than a freshwater fish. And huge amounts of outer body slime, you know, fin to body ratio. You can see, in, you know, the fishes, the golden Mahas here is just designed to survive an extremely hostile environment. Hmm. You said it's, it's you know, covered youngest. with slime? Yes, they saying? have a lot of outer body slime. That iridescent, the, the iridescentness of the fish as you hold it up in the sunlight is actually slime. It's, it's, it's layers of outer body slime. It's very hmm. slick. Um, and you see these fish, uh, you know, they're holding in really, heavy, really heavy water. And, and they're specific fish, which are just, they live in rapids, you know, so they're, they're even more leaner. Now, how large do these fish get? And looks like the average size that you might catch. The golden moss here, uh, they, they can grow up to about 75 pounds in my view. Mm. Um, and the average, you know, with a lot of anglers going out fishing for them, both on fly as well as on lures, the average, and technologically, I think uh, fly fishing really has come a long way in the past 10, 15 years with all kinds of advanced technology. You'd be surprised to know that the average size, I mean, we were talking about nine pounds, eight to nine pounds. Uh, it went up okay. quite significantly for fly fishing as, uh, as we were trying all these new techniques up there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned the countries, uh, I, I think you said, um, 
Nepal, India, Myanmar, um, Pakistan, all have this fish. Um, it's an indigenous yes. fish to, to all those countries, correct? Yes, it's an indigenous fish to the sub-Himalayas. The Himalayas just start, uh, it's, it's a sub-mountainous terrain, which, uh, and elevations up to about 3,500 feet. You'd, you wouldn't, you know, you'd imagine, you know, they go really high up in the Himalayas, but they really don't. The Himalayas really go right. on from there. Uh, so these are, they're really found in the foothills. Um, and a lot of these foothills really are some of the richest habitats that all of these countries have to offer in terms of the best tiger, con- tiger concentration, one horned rhino, of course, the Asiatic elephant. Um, much of the area I spent uh, a lot of time in is called the Terai. It's found, in, of course, um, in southern Nepal, but also in sort of north northeastern India, um, which is um, considered critical tiger habitat and a really, really important wildlife corridor. And a lot of the great fishing happened there. Okay. Now, is this um, so? Is this all south of the Himalayas, Himalayas, uh, or do they? Are they also on the other side of the Himalayas? Um, that's a very good question. I would just, th- this is the part of the Himalayas that I've, you know, that, that part of the Himalayas would be into China. And there are not right. that many reports right. of uh, Golden Mass here on that side, either because of okay. the development there or uh, hydroelectric projects. Um, mm-hmm. Well, much of the case here as well, uh, which is, I'm sure, a topic we'll come to at some point in, the, in, our, in our conversation today. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, what what kind of the way you described it that there's you know this is a habitat where tigers uh, thrive and so forth. So, what's the topology like around these rivers? Um, is it is it jungle? Um, is, is it alpine? What what? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming jungle. Uh, but uh, what, what would you find behind your back as you're casting? <laughs> jungle. Jungle. Okay. Um, and as the Himalayas taper down and as the Himalayas behave differently, as they go eastward, they get more rainforestry into impenetrable bush. While as in the Terai, the area I was mentioning on the border of India and Nepal, there are less, uh, it's less, it's not as, less, it's more penetrable. Uh, so that bush varies, but you're mostly looking at jungle, uh, jungle fishing um, over, over very rugged mountains. Which in the U.S. Um, I have seen in uh, you know outside of Seattle and Washington, uh, in the Olympic Peninsula, that area, those national parks there, uh, those uh-huh. rugged mountains, is what I can somehow closely compare uh, these mountains to. But just much more, uh, you know, not as cold obviously because we're we're tropical, we're closer to the equator there. Uh, uh, so there's abundance of wildlife and birds. Some of the most prolific bird-watching areas of northern India. Um, and Mahasir are considered bioindicative fish. Why are they the iconic fish of Asia? Because they are, they are the bioindicative fish. They are the species which always told the story of, of the ecosystem. And as like so many other bioindicated species, the Mahasir is one of them, which is, you know, there's the reality checks in the face of the human uh, us humans to get our act together. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, are they um, being bioindicator? Does that? Um, it sounds like they're a pretty, pretty rugged fish as far as uh, being able to survive. You know, thousands of years of 
Um, you know, in, in my mind, the way you describe it and the way they look, they, they do look kind of like a tarp and look kind of prehistoric uh, in certain ways. Um, so do, um, you know, we have fish here in the United States like carp that seem to be able to live just about anywhere um, and, and survive, whereas other fish are much more sensitive. Where, where would you place it, you know, in the scheme of things as its sensitivity to environmental, um, you know, effects? And that's a, you know, this my subject might be a little debatable, but I'd love to get into it. Uh, the golden mass here, um, it's basically, it's a very, very, very rugged fish. You know, you, you, when you hook it, when you ha handle it, you know, it, it's, you, and when you let it go, it's very powerful still. And, you know, as long as you, you keep it in oxygenated water and handle, handle it, uh, you know, without taking it out of the water. Um, but as these fish, as these dams are beginning to come up and they're able to, you know, literally surround masses of land with, uh, with, with silt, because these are young mountains, you know, the, the concept of deforestation is really, really not sinking in. This is not, these are not people who are fishing with a full stomach like us. They're fishing on an empty stomach. So for them, right. conservation is, comes later. I mean, this is survival mode over here. And as those mountains get there, those landslides start coming down. The roads can start coming in from here, from the south or southern side, because New Delhi needs the development. You know, we need to see development. Uh, and as those roads come in, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of forests are taken out. Uh, dams come in, masses of forests are taken out and now underwater submerged. So a lot of the golden mass here is spawning habitat. They're bat spawners from the best of my uh, knowledge. You know, still we have to receive good information uh, from our ichthyologists on the, the real spawning habitat, but seems they're bat spawners just to be able to survive in these hostile environments. But their spawning habits, which is the fine gravel that they spawn on, that's the question. And those smaller mm -hmm. tributaries where they eventually spawn, that's that, but the spawning habitat, they have, it's like the tiger, it's the same issue. It was not the conservation of the tiger stopped the hunters, because India stopped the hunters. India banned hunting. It was the habitat was gone. Every uh -huh. tiger needed yeah. 40 square kilometers to be in. He, he needed no. that much space. It's like, I need so much space to live in. I need a bedroom and I need a toilet. You know, you're going to give me that much. <laughs> uh, and the same is the case with the golden mass here and spawning habitat. Yeah, yeah, and that's the case in, well, whether it's, you know, you know, uh, the ocean or any river or lake, that, that, that spawning habitat is the first thing to go, it seems like. And that's, um, that's you know, the effect that it has. Now, these, it, it's primarily a, a river fish, or does it live in lakes as well? It's known to live in lakes um, uh, all across, fresh, uh, lakes which have a good amount of spring supply or calls during by earthquakes is one, one there are a couple of them i've always wanted to go to or, or one i've always wanted to go to it's right on the border of myanmar in india it's actually called the lake of no return in the second world war history uh, which has these stories of these monster mahasir locked in this lake um, and mm. there are similar many lakes freshwater lakes right across the himalayas uh, kumal have been many described with the golden mahasir so yes they do live in lakes natural okay. lakes um, but, and, and as, in, and as you've been forced to, uh, sorry. Go ahead. As they've been forced to, they've also, you know, adapted to reservoirs as well, man-made reservoirs, uh, right. which are dams. Mm -hmm. Now, what, uh, when you go, when you take your guests fishing over there, it's primarily, uh, sounds like fishing the rivers, of course. Um, what, how would you describe these rivers, and could you compare them to 
any rivers you fished in the United States or other parts of the world, as far as the size, the gradient, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Um, some of the rivers I've again I've seen in, in the Washington State, uh, you know, steelhead rivers. You know, those seem very close to um, very close to our rivers, um, and they vary from smaller, clear rivers to um, larger, larger, much more pushier, faster rivers. Our valleys tend to be also really, really wide, just because the monsoon just flushes right through. So. That mass of the, some of the valleys that we have back in the Himalayas, um, I've yet to see uh, anywhere. But some of those those classic steelhead rivers, uh, even in Oregon, uh, uh-huh. seem like they come. And I haven't love to go to Canada one day, but I haven't yet been to Canada. Uh, but it is very much of those beautiful rivers that encourage you to fish off the swing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Good. We'll probably talk more about that in a few minutes. Let's take a, a quick break here, and then. Uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll dig a, a little bit more into this, uh, this incredible fish and fishery uh, on the other side of the world here. Looking for a shot at a permit? Whitbray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. Uh, when you stay at Whitbray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whitbray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished in the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whitbray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhitbrayKeyFishingLodge.com. Again, that's Whitbray Key, that's C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Misty Dillon about Golden Masir. If you'd like to ask Misty a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. Uh, we'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show tonight. So, Misty, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world, and uh, tell us a little bit about your, your, you know, your travel service and, and what you're doing over there. Well, uh, we just started up our uh, little company, Transformative Travel LLC, uh, here in Maryland, um, and I'm just excited to lead some expeditions into these areas, into the unknown again, areas I've always wanted to go into, uh, but I've really not had the chance. Uh, and next year is quite a special year for traveling in Nepal, uh, because they're really reaching out. They've gone through a rough phase, and they've, they've done this huge tourism campaign called uh, Travels in Nepal, uh, to Visit Nepal 2020. So I'm leading an expedition. Uh, next year, next October, and the, through the heart of the Terai again, the Bardia National Park, and one of the few national parks that actually allows you to uh, do a little bit of catch and release, angling, single barbless hooks only, right through the heart of the park, and we'll be lucky if you see a taiga and a one horn rhino, and then I'm off to Bhutan after that to fish another really special river called the Sankosh, or the Puna Sangju. Um, so um, I'm very excited about our our upcoming adventures. Um, and the best way to reach us is um, our website, the transformative travel dot LTD. Um, and of course, by phone, I'm always available at 443-766-3644 uh, if anyone has any, any questions about this. Okay. What it, uh, the, uh, I want to make sure people get that. Um, so transformative uh, travel dot Transformative Travel dot LTD, yes. LTD, okay, that's what I was trying to get. Yes. LTD. 
Uh, so it's a bit unusual, transformativetravel.ltd. And why don't you give your phone number again too, Misty? Uh, my phone number is 443-766-3644. Okay, and I'm, I'm happy to talk Mahasir fishing anytime. Sure, yeah. So if, people have, if you guys got questions about, uh, you know, travel over there, taking a trip, then uh, Misty is more than happy to help you out with that. So good, good. And uh, and as we talked earlier before the show, um, you know, and we will talk about some of the conservation efforts there. So I'd like you to share that as we, we get to that and, uh, and, uh, Absolutely. and talk about what's going on over there. Um, now, a couple more questions about the fish itself. Um, do they, uh, you know, do they migrate to spawn? And um, if so, do they go very far or is it very close to, to where they normally reside? Uh, generally, um, so they spawn during, they're known to spawn uh, during a few times of the year, and, and it goes around the monsoons, which is a yearly phenomena, uh, the southwest monsoons, which, you know, depending on where you are in the, in the foothills of the Himalayas, can start as, as early as March and, and can go on as late as end of October in some places. Mm. Um, the fish mostly deposit all of their spawn in the peak of the monsoon. So when the rivers are really roaring, these fish are going up to spawn into the subtributaries. Okay. And that's the main time. It's usually said to be anywhere between July, August, and even September. Uh, but I, I believe they spawn even in February, March, and even in the main rivers uh, about as early as that in some, in, in some oh. cases during the year. Okay, okay. Um, and speaking of that is, you know, um, we're always concerned about fishing fish that are on, you know, on their, their reds or whatever uh, during the spawning season. What are the best times of year to be fishing over there for the Masir? The Masir, like any, any significant species, they have a very, very small window. The window is very narrow. Uh, for fly fishing is usually the month of May when the fish are getting ready for the spawn. They start collecting up on the confluences. Because it's the half peak of summer, the rivers are running quite low in some cases, uh, the smaller rivers. And the snow melt is coming up in the bigger rivers, and the fish start getting pushed up into, you know, these pockets of water where they're trying to feed and, uh, on other bait fish as well. So May offers a good window on uh, fly fishing. Uh, October offers a very small window, uh, but it can be a very productive window as well. Um, uh, so May and October would be the peak months for monster fishing. Okay, okay. Are there other species other than the golden monster, or, or is it the only, there's just one monster? So the golden monster has a very, very, very close cousin uh, called uh, the redfin monster or the short-gilled monster. Um, the golden monster's Latin name is Barbus star putitora, and the Latin name for the short-gilled mahasir or the redfin mahasir is the barbus tartar. Uh, and the tartar and, and the putitora, uh, these two fish, of course, share the exact same habitat. Uh, but there is gooch, the large catfish, indigenous catfish, uh, which, is, which can grow up to huge sizes, uh, said to be over 200 pounds, and, of course, the teeth. Uh, so it's quite a prehistoric, uh, we call it a vacuum cleaner, the vultures of the river. 
because uh, <laughs> they obviously clean the river. And they're, they're also another very important bioindicator species uh, which, which really need uh, conservation. The Wallaguatu is another one, uh, which is another very interesting species. Luckily, you know, the snakehead, there's also species of the indigenous snakehead in some of the rivers. So there are a few species uh, in some of the other in some of these rivers that you can also uh, indulge in when you're there. Oh, okay, okay. So is, is the golden nasir a threatened species? Is it, um, uh, is it, uh, for instance, eaten as a food source uh, for, you know, the local uh people it's highly threatened uh, it okay. is indeed eaten as a source of protein for people in the remote Himalayas uh, it's eaten because hunting is banned in India and Nepal hunting is banned you cannot hunt uh, and it's very strictly enforced and you can see the results there's, there's wildlife in India is doing very well with this wildlife um, but the people rely they can get away with killing fish and eating them, the wildlife laws are not strict enough to enforce on the fish as much. So the fish do take a beating, but what is killing them is the habitat, is the and the roads coming in, uh, the dams, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the badly designed fish ladders. Uh, the fish are not the priority. Electricity is the priority. New Delhi needs more electricity. New Delhi is running out of water, you know. Uh, it's a never-ending yeah. process. So that's the... Yeah. That's, that's the uh, and people are realizing it because as the wildlife is doing well, the country is beginning to declare more national parks, forest corridors are beginning to get the attention that they never got before. As a result, uh, people are seeing the income from tourism, uh, sustainable tourism. Those, that part of the world also gets sustainable tourism because they know it's a highly populated part of the world and we have to learn, live to learn in, within our means. So even that uh, has sunk in. But it's the habitat of the golden mouse here, which is, uh, yeah, and which it's, is, which uh, is what it is. It's uh, a tough road. Many countries have, you know, gone through that. You know, there's a lot of Caribbean countries. For instance, Belize has made a good turnaround from commercial fishing and uh, so forth into, you know, tourism, where now tourism is the number one industry in the country, you know. Um, and wow. it wasn't that way at one time. But but it takes years to get that to turn around, and I can understand that. I mean, I just read read a article. I think it was National Geographic about you know just people don't have bathrooms you know in India. Well, it's hard to think about you know conserving fish when you don't even have to play, have a place to go to the bathroom, um, or you don't have clean water or things like that. So very understandable. Um, it's a big battle, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's very real. So, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us about um, the different um, uh, the different countries. Um, I know you said uh, you know earlier we talked about Nepal and India, uh, Myanmar. Um, uh, you said you hadn't fished in, in Pakistan, but uh, you fished in, in all those three countries: Nepal, India, and Myanmar. Yes. Yes. Uh, Myanmar also we couldn't uh, really because we could, didn't end up getting our permissions. We made, we made it in, but we couldn't really get our permissions to um, to get into uh, Myanmar. But we were trying to basically get to the Lake of No Return, which is supposed to have some really really incredible fishing. So it's uh, because it's of the that, military. Yeah, all the political unrest there and so forth. Yes, and um, it seems the military is, you know, they are very, very strict areas. You can only go into very, very controlled areas, and you really can't leave that area. So 
Uh, and so it was very hard to even communicate with them. Uh, and it was sheer other confusion, so we literally had to leave the country. Mm-hmm. So where do you where do you take your guests? Uh, where, where are your prime fishing locations? For years, um, for years, I guided on the river called the Bahakali and the Saryu, which demarcated the borders of India and Nepal. Um, that was our main river. We fished um, a little bit in the neighboring state, Himachal Pradesh, um, and um, a little bit in the far eastern state of Arunachal Pradesh, which is a huge wilderness area with a lot of potential and rivers. So uh, some of the best. We were the, I always said we were the bioindicators. We were going where the best habitat was. So whatever was protected within national parks and protected nature reserves. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and so, so that's where you take your guests now? I mean, you said you had fish there, but that's where you take your guests now? Yes. Uh, we have a, the, the Mahakali is a classic. The Saryu Mahakali is a classic. It's a great river. Uh, which still fishes, which still doesn't have a dam on it, so it still looks like it's, it's a hopeful fishery. Um, and now we're beginning to explore more rivers in Nepal, so it seems like some of those rivers are going to be, uh, they're going to be, just because of their protected status, uh, getting, you know, we're going to be doing well on those rivers. And of course, Bhutan has always been the Mecca uh, because of its protected uh, status. Uh, they've really maintained their conservation uh, very well. Of, uh, of, and hence protected the habitat really well as well. I think Bhutan is also known for good trout fishing too, isn't it? It is. It is. There's some excellent trout fishing there, and also a species called uh, called the snow trout, which uh, um, which is a species which one of my friends he's got a company um, called Sun Valley Outfitters, Bryant Dunn. Um, he's an expert at catching those snow trout. Uh, up in a place called Punaka, um, another really cool species. So Bhutan has a lot of uh, great fishing, uh, which is still quite untouched. Mm, okay, okay. Now, what you know, if you go on a trip over there, what what are the living conditions like? You know, what should one expect? Um, you know, while, where do you stay? Uh, those kind of things. A lot of the journeys that. I take out there, we try and stay in a good hotel when we arrive because you, you know, showing up after this long flight, which, you know, can be in some, it can be pretty long. You can decide to break it under various options and we can talk about that later. But I try, we try and do a good hotel in the first beginning of the trip and the end of the trip just so you can have a proper bath and a proper shower and feel normal <laughs> and have a good meal before you head out into the bush. Um, Literally one of the best, the most important considerations in any of our journeys is safety and then hygiene. Uh, and then some journeys can be as simple as literally sleeping on a mattress and a sleeping bag and, you know, a, a self-made pillow uh, in a tent uh, and floating down the self-sustained journey. Other places, more elaborate camps can be set up because they have more proximity to roadheads and uh, it's easier to set up. So a lot of, a lot of the journeys really... There are the two the two ends of exploratory and then a little seasoned, which which offer the difference between the the accommodations when you're actually in the field. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, does it involve um, backpacking, or are you close enough to road to the, where you can walk in most of the time? Uh, you know, and, and, and get back to the the roads, or give it, try to paint us a picture of you know what what a, a couple of days in the bush is going to be like. A couple of days in the bush is usually a flow trip. 
uh, is usually using a couple of boats, uh, and depending on the status, uh, status of where you're actually floating through, uh, some uh, national parks set up minimal impact uh, policies where you you know can't set up you know a, a full safari camp inside the national park, mm-hmm. um, or if you're camping on the edge, then you can. Um, so you generally float down just to cover okay. a lot of water and find the aggressive fish is generally the tactic uh, when you're okay. going in. Um, you're often you're often fishing from the bank, but sometimes you're even cast from the boat. Their lateral lines are highly evolved, and I, I haven't spoken about that before, but they are very smart fish. They can feel from far away, and, and they have great communication amongst themselves. And um, So generally, we usually... If you if you've got if we you know we've got good water coming up ahead, we usually park the boats up before, and then uh, and then walk down and wade fish uh, from the banks. And uh, take it rubber rafts is what you're using for boats. Oh no, commercial uh, whitewater rafts, literally imported Nepal and India and Bhutan are the home of some of the best whitewater runners, and we've yeah. used their boats for years. We had our own high sides and. Um, uh, NRS, of course, uh, you name it. Oh, okay. So okay. those are the boats that uh, get used in terms of oil rigs and in some places paddle rafts, depending on how the guides are running the river. Okay. And most of them, okay. uh, most of the fishing rivers uh, can take you up to a class three plus rapid, which okay. uh, in most cases uh, you can just walk around if you don't want to uh, get yeah. splashed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Again, these rivers are, uh, it sounds like they're pretty decent-sized rivers. Um, what's wading like? Are, are we looking at more freestone, a lot of bold, you know, bowling ball boulders, or, or more gravelly bottoms? Or what, what, what's it like? It can vary. Um, we're looking at boulders, but largely you're, you're looking at boulders. We generally advise you to not go straight into the water and wade immediately. Generally, I ask you to make a few casts from away from the river, just because they're very smart. And then, of course, as you as you fish your way into the run, you can start wading. But the wading can get a little challenging, mostly in the months of in the pre-monsoon months of May, when there is a lot of algae in the river. In the months of October, usually right after the monsoon, the rivers had enough flush. It, the rivers that get flushed and cleaned, the entire ecosystem is rejuvenated, so there's less algae in the river. So generally in May, you're, you're going to end up having a little harder time waiting. Yeah, I know down in the San Juan River in New Mexico, here, uh, they talk about um, the, the, the boulders in the, in the water and call them greased bowling balls. Because <laughs> they're so hard <laughs> to walk, you know. So, uh, that's a really good so, Yeah, that slime can uh, send you for a, a swim really, really quickly, that's for sure. Um, so, but the good um, news is, Ma- good news is, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Good news. The is, good news of Marcia fishing is that you don't wear waders. Ah. Oh yeah, <laughs> wet wade, right? It's nice and warm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, that brings up a good point. What about uh, you know? Do you do you bring along wading boots with uh, with studs in them or felt bottoms? Uh, what what kind of footgear do you do you use, or do you just use sandals? I prefer using felt bottom, um, felt bottom wading boots. Uh, they're a little clunky. Sometimes you need a little more subtlety. But um, w- walking around on those big boulders, I like my feet to be safe, just because I don't want my ankle to be twisted in the middle of an expedition and the heart of 
the Himalayan foothills of Nepal and India or Bhutan. Um, yeah. So proper wading boots, um, ankle support. Uh, I don't prefer, I don't like to advise people to have, uh, ankles to have spikes, studs in their boots, just because you're getting in and out of rafts and the ultras often get upset about that. Uh, so the simple uh, felt soles, uh, they're a little uncomfortable in the boats just because they're really slippery in the rafts. They're, they are the best way to go. Okay, okay. Okay, um, well, let's take another break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about more about actually fishing for these, uh, these monster mustiers. And uh, uh, so hang tight, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They're best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Misty Dillon about Golden Masir. Uh, if you'd like to ask Misty a question, just go to our homepage. Fill out that form on the homepage, and we'll uh, take a look at your question and try to get it answered on the show tonight. Uh, let me see here. Um, just checking to see what we've got coming in there. Okay, um, so let's talk about fishing. Uh, Phil McCartney in California, Kentucky, uh, he says, a trip with the goal to catch a golden masseur does not strike me as something one should attempt to do on a whim or without a lot of preparation. So how did you decide to, to do so? How did, what got you going in fishing for these fish? I just got really passionate when I saw the golden masseur and learned about its habitat. Um, because I, was, uh, I grew up very close to its habitat, and I heard of stories of uh, people I knew going fishing for them and, and legend associated to this species. Then I was fortunate enough to catch one very close to where I lived in, and I got the, the moment I caught it, I was I got obsessed with fishing for these fish. Um, and as I got obsessed with fishing for these fish, I I realized when I was very young. I got, this is when I was about 14 or 15 years of age. I realized that the only way to really explore these Himalayan valleys for their angling potential for golden mass here would be to become a river guide. So off I went working for one of India's leading whitewater runners, you know, jumping before class for rapids and learning how to become a river guide and then uh, doing these flow trips into these remote areas uh, and setting up an expedition company specifically. Uh, so I really custom designed my life around these fish. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. And then uh, I, I take it, how did you learn how to fly fish? Because I assume a, a lot of the, you know, that, that's not something that every kid does over there, um, and the availability of equipment and so forth. How did, how did you get going with that? So my experience in angling came from my father, who I lost when I was only eight years of age. He was in the Indian Army. And the Indian Army had a lot of influence of angling because of its colonial history. 
Uh, fishing rods were uh, probably even an issue in some of the uh, some of the canteens. And my father uh, ended up getting along with one of his uh, officers and going out fishing. So I, after he passed away, and then I was about fourteen, fifteen, when I said I started fishing, I saw his fishing rods, and I, uh, one of them kind of resembled a fly rod. So, but I didn't really know how it worked or anything. I just literally. I started taking a line, uh, really braid, and then putting a toilet glue on it, the heavy glue which actually sticks onto the line and makes it heavy, and using it as a fly line from these few flies I brought, bought from one of these tackle, these small little tackle shops. Then later in, in 1998, it was my first interaction with America's first fly shop, Urban Angler in New York. Out of the blue, John Fisher wrote, writes to me and says, hey, you know, I'm interested in going fishing. Would you like to just try out these fly lines, I'm going to send a few boxes to you, uh, and a bunch of these flies, try it out for these fish. And that's how fly fishing really started evolving, because he sent me the right fly lines. He sent me the teeny's 250 grain, 300 grain fly lines, where we're getting down to these fish quick enough for us to be able to catch them on flies. So I was, I was very much, because of him at that time, part of the whole era of fly fishing, which was just beginning to come into all of these game fish all across the world. Uh, Phil McCartney also asked, um, you know, what mistakes did you make that others might learn from, uh, you know, as you made this journey to be, uh, to fish for these fish and to, to guide for these fish? What did you learn along the way? Um, I learned, um, I learned to get out of my head uh, when I was fishing for these fish because when I was thinking about it too much, I wasn't getting it right. And these fish really test that. They push that mental ability, that that sense of uh, being there at the right time is more important. Fishing smart is more important than fishing hard. Uh, and that's definitely um, definitely one of the main things that Mahasya has taught me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned um, um, before while you're fishing, you know, that you're in tiger country. Um, is that something you have to worry about while you're fishing? Is it like Alaska where the, the brown bears come down to the river and start fishing too? More problem is the tigers, we scaring the tigers. That's a bigger problem. Oh, really? Um, but <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> not a big concern. Us. We've hunted them to extinction now. It's gone into their genes to avoid us. Um, yes, they, they, this is the heart of tiger country. It's a treat to see a tiger, but it's okay. not a sight often seen, even in critical tiger habitat, I'm afraid. Uh, tigers are extremely shy. They avoid you. And and another predator, which is very much coinciding with humans there, is the leopard. It's one of the highest concentrations of leopard. Uh, and they're highly nocturnal, so both these huge these apex species are, are roaming around, and you have no idea that uh, <laughs> that what's around. So they, they are there, and you can feel their presence. But they're but they've never been a threat in, in the 15 years that I've literally camped in the bush in those in, in that part of the world. Okay, okay, good. Um, so Florian uh, Werner uh, in in Quebec, Canada, asks, uh, "What's the typical fly fishing rig that you you use to catch mucks here?" You know, like I prefer, um, line, yeah, I've, um, depending on the river, um, an eight weight, um, a, you know, a fairly, a fairly fast action eight weight with, a, you know, 300 grain, uh, you know, one of those 30-foot uh, sinking heads. 
uh, like the Tini 300, 250, um, you know, fast loading, uh, you know, shooting heads with a with a with a four to five foot leader, you know. And I'd like I love to have a stripping basket on me so I can put that running line somewhere because you're walking along and covering this water and that running line is getting stuck all over your feet and uh, so that's my preferred rig with about with about a good 250 yards of backing, uh, you know, well tied to the fly line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so, are you always sinking, uh, fishing with sinking tip? Is it? Is, and, and what do you? What, what if masier eat? Um, are they primarily bait fish, or do they feed on uh, insects as well? What, what's their food source? They're feeding on. They're omnivores. They're efficient omnivores. So their favorite food, if you ask me, literally, is crab, snow trout, and crab, crab, little river crabs. Um, hmm. Got very large river crabs in some of these rivers. Surprisingly, uh, they just suck them up with a vacuum-like mouth. So snow trout. when you say crabs, are these are these are the flies you use similar to the crabs we might use in in uh, the Caribbean in the ocean? I mean, where they're unfortunately, unfortunately, we haven't got quite that far in fly fishing from us here. But that's a great idea for someone who would like to go and throw a few crabs and drag free drift them some down other down some of those runs. Crabs are some of the favorite food of the golden knot. You can literally see them as you. Uh, the Himalayas give you a great advantage. You can literally get yourself up one of these mountains, up little hilltops, with your guide, and you can literally see the fish down into the river and and feeding away. Mm. Um, how big are those crabs? Certain times, very significant for a river crab. You'll be surprised at that side of a river. That big, in some cases. How, how big? A very big for a river crab. You know. Yeah, but I mean, is it like one inch crab. around? Is it two inches around? I would around? say more. It could be about more than two inches around in many cases. Oh, really? Two wow, to three inches big. around. Yeah. 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 Two Good two deal. inches around at least. <laughs> Yes, definitely. So, but you say that that's not what you—that's not what you try to imitate when you're fly fishing. So that's not what we're. Yes, so we're imitating minnows. We're imitating bait fish, uh, like the chilvera is one of them, and then of course snow trout is one of their favorite fe- fish. Okay, and so you the feed is one, it uh, primarily then uh, streamer fishing. It's primarily streamer fishing, but adolescent and juvenile fish feed largely on insects. So mayflies, dragonflies, damselflies across the board. These rivers have some large, huge, they have good bug life, and they grow, and the bugs grow really big. Um, so if you want to catch smallmouth here, you can put on a dragonfly nymph and, and catch catch a few smallmouth here. But if you'd like a sizable fish, uh, your best chances with um, uh, with a streamer getting down, uh, getting down. Unless and until there are some situations, you will find the big fish coming up, you know, and sipping things off the surface. That's when you can throw a, throw a hopper at them. The masier, masier will eat dry flies, um, especially in the month of May, if, if you've got the right, uh, right, right, right river current and everything's working right, you can throw a dry fly out there. That's now, um, uh, any particular patterns you use? Um, for streamers, uh, things that we would know of here uh, or, or similar to what we have here? A lot of Ken Morris's streamers have been our go-tos, uh, just the various sculpted patterns that he's dressed over the years with tumble heads on them. Uh, 
you know, usually with a stinger hook, which is a little short shank. Uh, Bahasi are really hard on hooks, so the hooks have to be really, really good. Um, and a lot of the gamakatsu um, and the daiichi hooks that are now in the market are, are, are very good. Uh, but in streamers, that would be the closest. That's the fly tire I've been a fan of over the years, and those are the flies that I. Uh, but the gummy minnows have been a classic over the years. Uh, even the these flies, um, gummy minnows. Gummy minnows, okay. <laughs> gummy minnows is those yeah. are used for the tarpon, absolutely. They're very versatile, obviously. Uh, yeah. Woolly bugger, obviously. I'd throw woolly bugger in there as well, but. You know, you, you, you need good hooks, and that's a very important consideration for a mass here fly. But you'd be surprised, even a crease fly, um, and a habitat and a characteristic you'll find among all rivers all across the Himalayas is at night, all of the bait fish get pushed up on the banks, and the mahasir are feeding. Mahasir are a highly nocturnal fish. They, in most rivers, if you take a flashlight and you go and, you know, use your flashlight to poke around and see the edge of the river, you'll see many, many bait fish packed up on the banks. And the, the way they pop is exactly like a crease fly. And we just, you know, Matt Harris, this famous photographer, uh, I had the pleasure of fishing with him at night uh, with a two-handed fly rod. It was quite an experience with this um, a crease fly going past by my ear every time he, he showed me. And the fish was sipping these crease flies off the surface at night. It was one of the most my most fascinating fly fishing experiences. Oh, interesting. Have you uh, tried any of the? It sounds like you said a stinger hook. Have you tried any of uh, uh, Kelly Gallup's uh, articulated streamers? I haven't. I haven't. Um, um, but I'd love to. I, I will look that name up. Yeah, Kelly Gallup. Um, he just uh, he just came out with a new book. In fact, um, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout. But um, those are oh. meaty looking, meaty looking articulated streamers. So I'm thinking these must here might might uh, think that a nice meal for themselves. Uh, but uh, yeah, you might want to take a look at some of those. Uh, they're very Absolutely. very inviting. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, so there could be some nighttime uh, fishing uh, for the, the moss here. That's that sounds pretty exciting. Kind of like big brown trout coming out at night, uh, and the seer come out at night too. Uh, that, that's good. Right. Um, yeah. Now, um, uh, so are uh, you know are are these fish holding in pools? You know, you had mentioned steelhead. Is uh, 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 it sounds more like that, that that they're holding in particular areas and not on the move, right? So, uh, are they in big pools? Is that or are they out in uh, in riffles, um, you know, heavier moving water. Where, where do they like to to lie? It, they lie in different parts of the river um, and move around in different parts of the river uh, and at different times of the year. For example, in the month of May, they'll be more closer to the rapids and be going into the rapids much more. The, the river temperature is much warmer, so they spend a lot of time in, in and around rapids. Their metabolism must be higher because they're obviously the water temperature is high. They, they're they're chasing around these bait fish. Uh, whereas in the winter months they tend to be more sluggish. They do move around, but they seem to be more in the pools and leaving the pools only at certain times at night. Mm -hmm. uh, depending, what we're looking for as anglers is the rain coming through and making the river a little off color. 
uh, in the hotter months of May, when the fish are more around the rapids, where they have uh, less of a time to decide when the fly uh-huh. comes swinging around. And they've just come up the rapid, they're a little tired, they see this fly swing around, and they just uh, take it. And that's one of the things about golden mass here. When they take, they take. <laughs> Don't messing around, huh? <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah, yeah. Um, let us take a, a quick break again, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll talk more about uh, actually fishing for these fish. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on tongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of rooster fish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Misty Dillon about the Golden Masir. If you'd like to ask Misty a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Receive your question immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, um, so um, when they take it, you know it, huh? Um, do the, um, what's their, their mouth like? Are they hard to get a good hook set or uh, like a tarpon is? Do they, you know, they, and, and if, if once you are hooked up, um, what, what do you need to, to worry about as far as keeping them hooked up? Talk. Uh, you really can't do much. Um, when the fish, these fish turn in heavy water, you can just literally angle the rods to try and get them to hit that eddy line and they can, you know, park themselves in the eddy somehow or slow them before they get into the rapid. But, um, I'll start with your first question, which is the physical design of the fish, mouth of the fish. It literally opens in the shape of a vacuum cleaner perfectly. Uh, and has incredible amounts of suction, it seems. can suck up a crab from a foot, as far as a foot, and just straight suck it right into its crushes and spit it out in, a, in numerous pieces. Um, Sounds like a permit. And so it, <laughs> perhaps, uh, yeah. and so it probably does, uh, stuns fish with that suction. Uh, so when it, when it's coming and taking a fly, uh, a fly of the swing, it's it, 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 these fish are actually trying to eat. They're not trying to. They're not irritated by it, or they're trying to. This is a, they're eating it. Uh-huh. And the time between the fish, what the fish takes and turns of the mahasir is really, really short. It's almost like a saltwater fish. From a few saltwater fish, I've been very, very fortunate to fish a good a bit on the uh, for striped bass uh, in Martha's Vineyard, and I they're the sizable size striped bass, and they were hitting like a bass here. You know, they were just coming and just crushing it and just taking off. Uh, and in the case of the bass here, you know, you've made a thousand and one cast by now, and you're least expecting it, 
and all hell breaks loose just before a rapid. Um, and the fish dives away, and if all works out, you know, uh, you land her a few yards downstream. Uh, or, or if you're smart, standing your ground and not actually running. A lot of times to always advise anglers not to run with the fish because the mouse would run further down. You'd run. And yeah. the guys would come back and say, oh, we ran two miles. Oh, well, you ran. Let the fish keep running. You can keep running. Ran two miles. Yeah. Um, what I was getting at before is like a tarpon has kind of a hard mouth. Uh, and to get that initial hook set is sometimes challenging. And, you know, also with a tarpon, um, you know, they'll jump and they'll cut the line with their gill, uh, their um, gill cover, right. you know, which is like a like a razor blade kind of thing. So I was wondering if there's any, any things like that um, or if, if getting a hook set on a muscier is relatively easy or do they have a hard mouth as well? I, uh, I find a hook, a hook set on Mahasya relatively easy, and in fact, easier on a barbless hook. They do have a hard mouth, but you think of it as hard leather almost, not quite as hard. I mean, the penetration is fairly, uh, and in some parts of the mouth are very, very soft. Um, uh, but by and large, when you're fishing a fish up a swing, I like to drop the loop. And the fish turns, um, and, it, and it nicely just tucks itself on the side of the mouth. Um, so penetration's really not an issue. It's when the fish takes the fly and turns into the rapid, and you have to kind of hold it to be able to not, so it doesn't really get into the rapid because this is, the rapid is full of rocks. Um, uh, you know, so when the fish tears away downstream uh, is when it just does something to the hook, and it just can, can literally straighten the hook. Um, so, good hooks are really important. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, yeah, and like you said, Gamagatsu, they make a good, you know, good saltwater hooks that are, are ready to take that kind of abuse. Um, so, uh, that's totally understandable. Absolutely. Now, yeah, so, so when, explain some of the presentations, how you would fish the river, uh, with your streamers, what, you know, what kind of approach do you take? I'd approach my water very cautiously. Uh, first of all, I'd like to get up on the hill somewhere to just get a, kind of get a sense of where I'm fishing, what I'm fishing to, because you're disoriented after this 48-hour travel across time zones, and you're just and the mahasir is a fish which is going to keep you into the unknown for longer periods of time than most other game fish. There are fish of the Himalayas; they're extremely well camouflaged. Your eyes will take a little bit of tuning to get, even with your finest coastal lenses, you'll, have, you'll take a bit of time to be able to see those fish properly and what they're doing. I, I like to approach my water very cautiously, uh, and I'd like to, you know, make a few good casts in water that is most likely to have the fish, and then stop and, and bait, switch the fly uh, before I go in again. But I'd like to observe more than I'd cast, but I'd make, Good water, I'd cover five or six cast. Mahasir are very smart fish. If that cast is within 30, 40 feet of them, they know it in a flash. They're on top of it if they want it. Mm. Okay. So are you, like, casting a, a cross stream and, and letting it float down and swinging it, or are you doing a lot of stripping? What? How do you retrieve? I try and find fish in broken water, water which has... Uh, where the fish has less of a time to decide. So I find the run, uh, and I look at the spots where the fish are going to be holding. Um, and a lot of these spots are, you know, have, you know, my, basically I'd like to fish broken water uh, and get my fly down deep 
uh, as I first fish the water close to me, so make sure I've covered all the water because a lot of times early in the morning you walk up, you're groggy, you're up on the bank, and the fish, the 30-pound fish is sitting right by your feet, and you've literally gone there walking right through your run and try and show your guide your best stake off with the fish. You just cross the fish. So um, uh, I'd like to cover the water really, really close in first, progress off, and, of course, into the, into the run, and then fish about 30, 35 casts before I come back, rest the water, or fish another stretch. Okay. Um, and, and and I may have missed it, but are you are, are you casting across and swinging, or are you casting and stripping fast through the the, the rapid? What what's your presentation? Like? You're swinging. You're swinging. You're casting. Okay. Uh, you're swinging. You're casting a little square of upstream, uh, a little upstream of square, and you're lifting uh-huh. your rod tip up just a little bit, just to give you a little bit of that mend, so the fast water doesn't doesn't push your running line down. And as you, as, uh, as that, as that, as that fly swings now, it's also going to get down deep and you get to fish, um, and you get to fish the big swing. So I like to always cast a little upstream of square, upstream of square, so the fly gets a little bit of time to sink before it comes into the swing. Okay. And, and how deep do you want to get that fly generally? As deep as possible. As deep as possible. Some of the runs, uh, the bigger rivers, you know, you want to get down 15 feet, 12 feet, um, as oh, quickly really? as possible. Okay. Um, uh, yes. And then some of some of the rivers, smaller, smaller rivers, in the hotter months of May, you know, you're trying to get down five or six feet, which is very manageable with most uh, with most uh, rigs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and you mentioned, I was going to ask you, you know, what the, what the fight's like. Um, do they like to run? Do they like to hunker down? Do they jump? One of the most significant features of the Mahasir is, uh, the sporting features, is the first run. They tear away that first run. Uh, they can take a really good second run as well, uh, but the, fir- the first run is when they just, they really, uh, it's extremely exciting. It's, you're, you're, you're completely in paradise. Um, uh, and usually you're able to stop the fish before the rapid, and then, you know, they take a few good runs again, uh, but nothing like that first run. They are not an acrobatic fish, unfortunately. They don't jump. Okay. You know, they'll okay. come up and headbutt. You know, they'll explode uh, on the water when they get hooked before they take that first run sometimes. Um, and other times they'll explode further into the run a little bit, uh, come up on the surface and show their big tail, especially if they're a nice big one. Um, but mostly... They're, they're acrobatic inside the water, trying to rub that line onto rocks and try and get it out of their mouth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. And um, um, so you had mentioned before, I think it was, uh, you know, in the, in the salt they call it down and dirty, getting your rod low and, uh, at a, you know, rather than high and, and trying to steer that fish. Is that a method you use when fighting? Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and just trying to stop these fish uh, as fast as you can because uh, a lot of these situations can get very tricky for fighting uh, fighting fish because they're just rapids and big boulders, car-sized boulders lying in the middle of the river and uh, really not feasible to wade out there in some places. So uh, you have to try and stop these fish quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is it all catch and release or is that? 
kind of determined by what, what river you're on. Uh, I know you had mentioned fishing in a park, so that's why I was kind of wondering if there's any regulations at all. All of uh, all of the fishing is catch and release, and um, as I joined the profession very early on, um, some of the forest officers left a really good impression, uh, and some of the mentors we learned guiding under. Uh, the government also enforced it in the areas across the Jim Corbett National Park where I spent a lot of my time fishing. Uh, hence, it just literally went into our policies: single barbless hooks, catch and release, single barbless hooks, basically. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, you know so what, all of what's the future? Categories. Okay, what's what's the future look like for the moss here? Do you see a, a growing industry? You, well, you must. You, you've developed a uh, uh, you know a travel company around this, so uh, I think you have high hopes for it. Uh, but uh, where do you see it going and, and 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 expanding? How do you see that happening? Well, um, the future of the Golden Mass here is definitely looks very bleak at this point. Um, that's just because of the habitat, um, habitat. But there is, there is a, a, a large growing uh, movement all across, uh, where uh, tribes and little groups of, you know, a couple of villages have gotten together as eco-development committees and said, hey, we want to preserve this little stretch of river because these, uh, a live fish is one more, worth much more than a dead fish. The basic sense of economics has started to trickle in. Yeah. Some cases yeah. the governments have enforced it. The other places, social media now is all over the place. I have now a huge amount of social media friends who just from these interior villages and these tribes uh, who are very fascinated by the by the draw of angling, and they've seen their rivers being completely destroyed through dynamiting and poisoning, and they want to bring these fish back, these fish of legends that their grandfathers caught. Oh. So while there is a huge decline in environment and the actual physical aspect of golden mass here habitat declining, there is a huge movement in conservation through young men, and I'm, you know, it's, I know many of them. Uh, to preserve these these golden goddesses that their grandfathers caught, and for them, these small community development eco development committees, uh, you know, bring together the few resources that they need to be able to either set up an angling camp, uh, or have the government set up an angling camp and get tourists to come in and sign up uh, and a fish for them for a few days, so they can make enough money and you know wait for the next season to come. Um, and that's a huge part of uh, the conservation, which is happening. People are getting out there, and young men are getting out there, and they're, uh, they don't want to be seeing that the rivers destroyed and dynamited anymore, and they don't want to see hydroelectric dams uh, anymore. So they are raising their voices um, uh, for the future of these fish. It sounds like, uh, you know, kind of a, a grassroots roots approach that might work well. I mean, if one village is successful in bringing in tourism, then the next village may hear about it and moves upriver or downriver. And, and before you know it, maybe we've protected a, a rather large stretch. So um, hopefully that will happen. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Um, uh, Phil, Phil McCartney asked another question here online. He says uh, he, he wants to know what challenges in fly fishing are next for you. As if, as if golden masir is not enough of a challenge. <laughs> but uh, is there is there a fish that you'd like to go after that uh, would be an exciting adventure other than the masir? Uh, steelhead, uh, for steelhead. sure. Uh, just because 
of, you know, life is about the contrast. You know, when you, uh, I'm used to golden mahasya habitat, and when you put me into a habitat which is so different to anything I've known, uh, it's trop- it's not tropical at all, you have to wear waders, it's probably going to be very cold weather. Uh, different wildlife will, might put me close to bears um, <laughs> and uh, and probably even a moose uh, uh, or an elk. Uh, so uh, steelhead for sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, good. Good. I hope you get to do that uh, uh, sooner ra- rather than later. But there's there's so much to fish for. You know, it's like uh, where 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 do you start and where do you end? It's uh, it can take a lifetime, which is I guess why we all do it too. You know, always a new challenge. And it's a great era. Uh, it's such a great era to be born in for fly fishing because there are all these new toys in the markets and everyone's <laughs> on the cutting edge of. Uh, of fly fishing, and, and the world is beginning to look back at the fly fishermen and saying, "Hey, these guys are bioindicators. They are they are yeah. about the best habitat and about conserving it." And that's where the Federation of Fly Fishers has been a huge inspiration. I was one of the first certified instructors from India at that point mm-hmm. in time, and I touched my instructor's feet when I was lucky enough to make it in the first go. Um, and but it was I embodied fly fishing, and I took it back to some of these rivers, and, uh, and and we literally converted some of our casting manuals into Hindi, our local language, and uh, taught it to young boys. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, it gives them a, a profession that they can uh, be proud of and and, uh, and teach their sons and daughters as well. So, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Well, um, time to, to wrap things up here, and... Um, Stick with me, Misty. We're going to do a few giveaways here before we end the night. We're going to be giving away a one-year membership Ooh. to the Fly Fishers International and a uh, one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And then thanks to, to Stackpole Books, we'll be giving away uh, one of their titles, which uh, the winner will be able to pick from a list, a rather long list of titles that we have available. So uh, that's kind of an exciting uh, mystery book uh, uh, prize that we're going to give away. So uh, hang tight with us, and we're going to do just that. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, nature and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout uh, flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. And to view their current wish list, go and learn how you can help support their retreats uh, at fishon.org. Again, it's fishon.org. And, uh, or you can call them at 616-855-4017. That's 616-855-4017. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, if you could take a minute and give us your feedback about the show, you can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What Did You Think of the Show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. Uh, for the winners for our drawings, are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but uh, make sure you do so for the next show. Uh, then you won't miss out on your chance to, to win one of these great prizes. Um, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and uh, tell you how uh, what we need from you so that we can uh, provide you with, with your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. 
Again, flyfishersinternational.org. Go there and learn about what they're doing, and I'm sure you're going to want to join if you don't win tonight. And, uh, okay, I'll fire up our database here, and uh, the winner is um, uh, Florian uh, Werner. Florian Werner, who asked a question tonight. Thank you, Florian, um, in Vermont. So uh, I hope you enjoy your membership and uh, take part in, in some of the activities that they sponsor. I'm sure you'll have a, a good time doing that. And then we're going to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. They are also a, a great publisher for books, periodicals, uh, for fishing uh, and fly fishing. So um, check them out, amatobooks.com. And our winner there is Eric uh, uh, Harrier, Harrier um, in, from Missouri. So, um, Eric, congratulations on winning that, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy your, your subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So now um, we'll give away a book, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Uh, find out more about what Stackpole has to offer. Go to stackpolebooks.com, stackpolebooks.com, and see the long list of titles that they have there. And uh, we're going to give away one of those titles right now. So um, question, uh, and, you know, you can answer this question in that form on our home page uh, that we had there. Um, and um, what is the... Uh, what food does the Masir prefer over all other foods that they have in the river? What what food? And uh, give us an answer depending, to that. Yes, go ahead, Misty. Depending depending on the uh, size of the fish, the bigger fish prefer uh, eating other fish and crabs. No, don't and yes, no, don't one. answer it, Misty. Don't answer it. <laughs> oh, sorry. This is the question. This is for the audience. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, that happens. It's happened once before too. And, uh, but uh, it, I don't think they they heard what you said. So, and uh, even if they did, they have to be fast. So, let's see. I'm I'm just refreshing my queue here, seeing uh, looking for somebody. There's a there's a, a bit of a delay from the broadcast and. Uh, before we get uh, the people answering, so I have, a, just have to keep refreshing my queue here to look for the answers and um, see if we can get a winner uh, here. So still checking here, and hopefully something will come in here shortly. We do have that delay. And it looks like we uh, we do have a winner here. We got an answer from Phil McCartney again. Phil, you're on top of it. What can I say? You're gonna have a whole library over there, Phil. Um, and he said uh, he said uh, crab and, and snow trout. So um, uh, and what I was looking for was that crab. Uh, sounded like they really liked those crabs. So, uh, congratulations, Phil. Uh, I will send you an update. Yeah, an updated list, and uh, you can choose from that and uh, add another book to your uh, now expanding library. So, enjoy and uh, thanks for listening. Um, and Misty, thank you for being on the show tonight, sharing with us your knowledge and experience about the Golden Mouse here and fishing in India and Nepal. 
quite the adventure, it sounds like. But thank you so much for spending your time with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. Yeah, well, good to have you, and uh, good luck with your travel business and uh, bringing people and introducing them to, to India and Nepal. And uh, like you said, it, it sounds like an adventure to me, and uh, those are always fun. So uh, good luck with that. Um, hopefully, all of you, you have uh, found the archive on our website. If you haven't, uh, just look for the link in the top line menu. It says archive. Go to that archive and search the past shows. We have over 300 shows now that you can search by keyword, a keyword phrase, trout, tar tarpon, masir, uh, you know, Madison River, um, and so forth, and uh, and see what you find. I mean, you'll you'll be pleasantly surprised by all the the great uh, guests we have and all the information that they're passing on. And our next broadcast will be on November 20th, um, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And that show will be, uh, I'll be interviewing Morgan Lyle, uh, on a, and the topic of the show will be Tenkara Today. Uh, Tenkara was introduced to the U.S. in uh, 2009. It's become a rapidly growing method of fly fishing for many fly fishers. Uh, how has it evolved, and what role does it play in today's fly fishing world? Well, you have to listen in and hear Morgan catch us up on what's happened and uh, have him share his secrets on how to catch more fish using the Tenkara methods. And we'd like to thank... Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future posts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.